we have an opportunity now to shift gears. We have just finished up dealing with the relationships, uh, which was a really wide span of relationships, all the way from the world and the authorities in your life uh, to the, uh, those that oppress you or rule over you to those within your most intimate relationships, in your home, and in your church. And this is one of the major themes. We're not going to not ever visit relationships again, because that's certainly going to come up in chapter 5, uh, again, as we go into the relationship between uh, the elders and the church, the pastors, uh, bishops, and the church. And so we're going to be revisiting relationships later on. But we are now going to transition and... Uh, back into one of the other major themes. So not only is a major theme the relationships of a Christian as the expression of your faith, but we also have the theme that Peter is very interested in developing and has con- is going to continue to develop, and we'll do all the way into 2 Peter, and that is the uh, expectation of the Christian that those who live righteously and godly in this present world will endure suffering, that Suffering at the hands of the world, not at the hands of God, um, is the, should be the expected experience of all believers. And how do we prepare for that? And how do we endure that? And how do we thrive in that? Because it's not just enough to endure. There's a lot of people that endure things, but they don't thrive in the midst of that. And God's Word really calls us to thrive and to grow even in the midst of that, and perhaps even more so in the midst of suffering than in the midst of, of I was going to say blessing, but suffering sometimes can be blessing, um, in the midst of comfort, we'll put it like that. Uh, because we have an idea that God's blessing is all wrapped up into our comfort zone. When we're, I'm comfortable and happy and content and satisfied, everything's going my way and I'm whistling down the lane, that that is God's blessing, that somehow when I am encountering opposition and struggles and, and, and violence, that that somehow is not a blessing of God. And yet we find quite the reverse in Scripture. And of course, Peter himself has this expectation for the most, all of his Christian life, his expectation is suffering. Because remember that after Christ's resurrection, in one of the last conversations he has on earth with Jesus, what does Jesus tell him? The end of your life is going to be one of suffering. You are going to suffer cruelly at the hands of men, and that's the reality. At the end of John, we find that, that Jesus tells Peter directly, this is your end, that's, that's where your life is going to go, that's how it's going to be completed. Uh, you're not going to see my return. You're not going to see the millennial. You're not going to see any of those things. Your life is going to be ended at the hands of others and you'll have no control over it. So for Peter, this is not just a sidelight of his life and ministry. It is the expected conclusion of his life and ministry is that he will end up a martyr for Jesus Christ. And that's exactly what did happen. And so this is very real to him, and it should be no surprise that it becomes a large part of what he's teaching uh, in all of in both First and Second Peter, and also in the book that we believe he influenced quite a bit in the Gospel of Mark. And so when we come into this now, we come to chapter three, verse thirteen. 
And he's, he's not really abandoned this to talk about relationships because he talked about, you know, how do you relate to those who are oppressing you? How do you relate to those that are abusing their authority over you? How do you uh, relate to those within your very home that aren't followers of Jesus Christ, that don't obey God? So he hasn't really left off completely the concept of how do you endure suffering, because he's doing it within the context of relationships. But now he wants to deal with it very directly. And so we pick up in verse 13. It says, And who is he who will harm you if you become followers of what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed. And do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear, having a good conscience that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. For it is better if it is the will of God to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. We're going to have four points that we're going to draw out of this. I'm probably not going to get to more than two today. Uh, I hope I get through two. Uh, I might just get through one. We'll see. Uh, I think it'll be two. I have four, and, but it'll take a little while to get through them all. And what we're looking at is what are we suffering for? And we have this described for us in these verses that we have four things I've drawn out here that we suffer for. And some of them are for our benefit and because of our life, and some of them are for others. Uh, but we have here a, a, a pretty concise direct statements that tell us exactly what we should anticipate suffering for in this world. And we're going to be exploring them. They're going to call us to some things that maybe we're not comfortable with all the time, uh, but we want to pursue them nonetheless. And if that's something we haven't been pursuing, we want to address that. So we come to uh, verse 13, and we have, this is our underlying philosophy. We like verse 13. And our answer to verse 13 is, of course, no one's going to harm us if we do what is good. Correct? That is the underlying philosophy of most of your health, wealth preachers on TV. Right? You keep doing what is good, and, uh, and the world will work it out. You know, it'll all come out right for you. And you can anticipate the blessing of God in the form of all your physical needs and wants being cared for. Because wealth is not a need, is it? Wealth is a desire, not a need. Uh, and all of your physical, not only material needs, but all your physical needs will be taken care of. And you'll have uh, strength of body and maybe just never die. Because that's the experience of the church, right? No one in the church dies. Right? No. And not all of them die by violence or martyrdom. Correct? Do any of you have any of your friends here that have died of martyrdom? Death? Martyr's death? Um, but we, us old timers, been in church for a while. We've seen a lot of believers of the previous generation pass. Some of them were family members, very dear people. Some of them that had great influence on me in ministry. Uh, that uh, I looked up to and learned from, who are now in glory, uh, and many of them got sick and died. But the health, wealth, gospel people, that basically health 
and wealth is the evidence of God's blessing would insist that that can't be. Because that means that if you, if you especially if you died without a mansion on earth, uh, we have one in heaven, a dwelling place. And so this is the philosophy that is being taught in many churches today, that this is the evidence. And it works pretty well in American churches. It doesn't work so well in other countries uh, where the norm for church people is poverty, but there is the American influence in all those countries. I've traveled to some of those. Haiti, of course, is the, is the country that, well, poorest on earth. And even there, there is an idea that somehow uh, the churches that are big and have all these, all these resources available to them, they're the blessed churches of God. And that these are, in fact, Pastor Perdessa one time says, why is it that all of those churches always seem to have money and the Baptists don't ever? Why is it us Baptists don't ever have any money? And I'm like, uh, don't know. You know. But the assumption underneath that is that, well, having those resources is equal to God's approval or blessing. And because we come to this and we insert our concept that if you do what is good, the evidence of blessing is no harm will come to you. And yet Peter is anticipating harm in his life, isn't he? And so we see this influence that somehow the correct answer to this is, well, of course no harm will come for you, to you if you are doing what is good. And we introduce this philosophy, but Peter very quickly addresses that is in principle true or should be true. That should be the case. Okay? If your children are being obedient and non-destructive and, and helpful and constructive is the word. I couldn't come up with that because all I could think of is not destructive. Uh, if they're being constructive and the use of their time and well-disciplined and they're not disobeying, there's no reason to punish them. Would you agree with that? You shouldn't harm them when they're doing right and good. That should be a pretty clear principle of a righteousness. As long as my children are doing good, no harm should come to them. And even in society, in larger society, it is the fool that goes in, the foolish ruler or king, that goes in and meddles with those who are doing his kingdom good. If someone is doing your kingdom good, that is, they are a benefit to your kingdom, then you should essentially leave them alone. Certainly not harm them. And we have seen that this principle, while logical and makes perfect sense, is violated over and over and over and over again. And not just in our time period, but all throughout history, that um, we want to place blame, instead of where it rightly lands on those that are doing evil, we put the blame on those that are there to do good. We displace that. And we're seeing it in our day. And it isn't new. There's nothing new under the sun, right? And so when I pick up the newspaper and I see that our police are being uh, just totally undermined uh, because they had to shoot a criminal and that they are the ones who did wrong, and we don't find 
anything about the criminal and the victims of that criminal, we make the criminals victims, now we have a problem. We have a violation of this logical principle. Those that do good and are beneficial to society, you leave them alone. You do them no harm. But rather now we see this reverse, and evil becomes good and good becomes evil, and that is an expectation that we have of the end times, and so Peter himself was expecting it in his lifetime. So did Peter want to do injury to the Roman Empire? Well, theologically you could say yes. Couldn't you? What about you? Theologically, are you a big proponent of, put in the blank, whatever nation on earth you want to pick, are you a big advocate of that nation? Or are you ultimately looking for their demise as a Christian? Well, our eschatology, our doctrine of last things, says that we expect one kingdom, kingdom reigned by Jesus Christ, that will destroy all the nations, subdue them all. So theologically, you are correct in saying that, well, you are anti-government in that sense. But that is eschatologically, and we recognize that that isn't what we are producing. This is what God does by his authority over government. And so that's not my job to undermine government. It is my job, rather, to, as much as possible, to benefit the society that I live in, to do good, to do them good that I do not count them as my enemy. In fact, I don't count any of them as my enemy, even those who count me as their enemy. And so we're doing good to those that despitefully use us, that abuse us. We're going to do good there. And so this is righteousness. And so the answer to the question uh, is expected, well, no, no one should be harmed if they're followers of what is good. If you follow a, a lifestyle that says, I want to, just be a good person and beneficial people around me that, that no one should harm you. And logically, it makes sense. But since when was the world ever logical? Because selfishness isn't really logical, but all of us are. Sin in its essence is completely illogical. And so while our answer to this is, well, theoretically, that is correct. If you follow what is good, no harm should come to you. Because why, and the old phrase is, don't bite the hand that feeds you, right? That's the old adage. Don't bite the hand that feeds you. If someone's feeding you, don't do them injury. If they're doing you good, don't do them harm. This is the verse that that phrase comes out of. So theoretically, yes, that is true. But the problem is you're not dealing with people who are righteous. You're not dealing with people who are logical. You're not dealing with people who have truth as the drive of their decision-making. And so Peter anticipates this. And he comes to verse 14. And he says, but even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed. And do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. So, 
Theoretically, correct. And you can say it's not fair. And you would be correct in saying that. Because the fair thing is that if you do good to people, they should do you no harm. Now, are you asking for reciprocating good? No, you're simply asking, don't harm. Do no violence against those who are doing you good. We're not asking them to do good to us because we did good to them. Because that challenges now your motivation. You're simply saying, if I'm doing good to my society, just leave me alone. Just let me continue doing it. I don't need reciprocation. I don't need you a pat on the back. I don't, I'm just going to be a good citizen. I don't need you to pay me to do that. I, I recognize that there are benefits for me within the society of law-abiding, nice people. Would you agree with that? That there's benefits for you inherently if you are participating well, doing good, and creating a society of nice people around you that obey the law. That's, kind of a, that's really what most people want. Or at least they say, theoretically, that's what they want. But they're too selfish to enable that. And so we're not looking for reciprocity. We're not looking for people to bless us. We're simply saying, do us no harm. But instead, we find in our experience that, in fact, you do good to people and they stick you. They stick it back. They, they do injury to you while you have sought to do them no injury but only to help them. Is that fair? No. But that's what a sin-cursed world is like. It is unfair in its essence. It is unfair that those you do good to would harm you. It's not rational. It's not just. It's, it's none of those things, but that's not... The, the world is not where you go to find those things. You don't find rationality. You don't find justice. You don't find fairness. You don't find that in this world. You'll find quite the opposite because this world is not submitted and surrendered to Jesus Christ. It does not want the truth. It does not want righteousness. And so when you portray righteousness to one another, within your family relationships, within the world, all the relationships we just got done studying for the last several weeks, we come now, okay, it was months, but we come now to, even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you're blessed. This is... There's an, there's an expected theoretical, logical blessing that comes from living in a society that lives verse 13. It says, you do good, we're not, we're not going to mess with you. We'll do you no harm. There's a natural blessing that comes to the individual that can just live a life peacefully. Right? There's still the struggles of life that go on, but, but generally you don't have people purposely trying to destroy what you're trying to accomplish. But now we get to, they're going to do injury to me when I'm doing what's right, and now that is a blessing? Yes, that is a different kind of blessing. I said this one is a natural blessing. There's a natural blessing that comes uh, from uh, verse 13. If verse 13 is a reality in our society, there's a natural state of blessedness that is there. When we get to verse 14, we are seeking out a supernatural state of blessing. 
Which is why Peter wants you to embrace suffering for righteousness' sake. Because it is the supernatural blessing. The natural blessing comes if verse 13, if you live in a home where verse 13 is applied, then you have a natural blessing there, whether you're a child or parent. If you, live in a, in a, if you have a church where verse 13 is applied, you have a natural blessing. It'll just be a peaceful, nice church to serve and minister in and grow in, and it, it'll be a fertile place spiritually. Natural blessing there. You want a supernatural blessing? Be the wife of the husband who doesn't obey God's word. Oh, wait, that was last chapter, wasn't it? That was chapter, no, it was this chapter. Chapter 3, verse 1. just seems like it was last chapter. It's been months. A month. It's been a month since we've been there. You see, you want a supernatural blessing? You're going to have to do righteousness even with a cost of suffering. Ultimately, we already know that. If we take it, if we stop thinking about our daily life and start thinking about what we know about heaven, who has the highest, closest access to the throne of God in heaven? Among the saints. Who has the closest, highest access? The martyrs. What is a martyr? Is a martyr someone who hasn't suffered? A martyr is the one who has received in his body the complete suffering of death for the name of Jesus Christ for doing good. So in our mind, we really recognize that there is a supernatural blessing if martyrdom brings you into the closest relationship in heaven with God, if martyrdom accomplishes that, then we have to recognize that means, if that's the ultimate suffering for his namesake, possibly, um, some would contend otherwise, that sometimes there's staying on earth is harder than just death. But we have this now, let's take it, so that's the big picture, so now let's take it to the little picture. If that brings supernatural blessing, if you are a martyr of Christ and you are elevated because you have been, uh, received this violence for doing good, the violence that has, that has killed you, that has put to death this mortal flesh, now let's bring it down to the small things. So can I be a martyr at work without death? Well, that means I'm going to suffer for doing good Right? I'm going to do good. Suffering's going to come. It's not logical. It's not rational. It's not fair. But I'm going to do righteousness. I'm going to do what is right. That's really what he means by good. As he points out in verse 14. It's for righteousness' sake. This is just what is right. And I'm going to stand for what is right. And if I suffer for that, so be it. I'm going to look for a blessing that is supernatural. Now, once, now some people, I didn't say spiritual. I purposely did not. People say, well, I'm going to lose all this physicality, but I'm going to have spiritual blessing. I'm using a different word. I'm using supernatural blessing. Okay? Because it can in, entail some of these things in this world. And that's really brought out in the last half of the verse. Don't be afraid of the threats. Don't be troubled. Um, and he goes on and says, uh, 
you, you, it's not going to affect your hope. And so we're going to keep serving. Many times, not many, I'm a, I can't say many times because I don't know all the times, but there are times when we see suffering as the context of increased opportunities to minister here. And that in itself is a blessing. In fact, I hope that's an answer to your prayers. I'm praying for opportunities to minister. I'm praying for those opportunities to minister. And so, well, when they come to you, sometimes they'll come to you through what we would consider, well, that didn't go my way. Don't you think the Philippian jailer was pretty happy that Paul and Silas got beat up and threw in prison? Oh, you never thought about that. The Philippian jailer was overjoyed, I'm sure, later on, not the night of, but later on, that Paul and Silas got beat up and thrown in his jail. Because the likelihood of his salvation outside of that suffering for righteousness, all right? Paul's eyes are doing nobody any injury. They're just preaching the gospel uh, for the good of people, but it went against some other people's concepts of selfish ideas. Um, and so here they are in, their, in his prison. Earthquake comes. You say, there's the supernatural blessing. God brought the earthquake, and the prisoners can all escape. Paul and Silas can get away. Everything's cool. That's the supernatural blessing. No, it wasn't. The, super, the supernatural blessing was increased opportunities for ministry. Paul and Silas stayed put. You see, they saw the supernatural work of this earthquake, and all our chains fell off, and, and here we are, and, and we have absolute liberty and here comes a soldier that's set to guard us and he's going to kill himself um, if we're not here because if he doesn't it's worse for him if the Romans get a hold of you and so stop don't do that we're still here ministering and it's kind of interesting it wasn't just Paul and Silas that stayed there it sounds like pretty much everyone did why because with all the bruises and scrapes and bloodied bodies and brokenness physically, that Paul and Silas endured before they got thrown in there, they sang. They didn't complain. They didn't moan and groan. I moan and groan. I moan and groan this morning. Um, whenever I spend a couple of days at the Bahamas, I'm always moaning and groaning the next morning, a little bit physically. Um, they didn't moan and groan. They sang. They didn't say, this isn't fair. This isn't right. This isn't just. This makes no sense. We weren't doing anything. No, they sang. They sang. They blessed the Lord and wanted to be a blessing and to not only um, the guard but the other prisoners. And we find that here, because they suffered for righteousness' sake, that they weren't there for their own selves. They were there for others around them, and they recognize that if the people in the marketplace don't want to hear the gospel, maybe the people in the prison want to hear the gospel, and in fact they did. And if they want to hear the gospel, maybe the guard wants to hear the gospel, and he did. All because Paul and Silas got beat up and thrown in prison. Unjustly. But God blessed it. Be and we have a part in that. 
And so when we, when we have suffering for righteousness' sake, because we were doing what was right, God commands us to do this, I'm going to do it, and now I'm beat up and I'm in prison. I, I'm going to not only just endure it, I'm going to use it. God's put us here, and we're expecting him to bless us, and so we're going to be a blessing. I think that's what we studied last week, right? That you are called to be a blessing. So I don't feel, I've been treated unfairly, but here I am in this environment, and I'm going to bless these people who are part of the, the, the jailer, who's part of the process that got us there that's unjust, but I'm going to seek to bless them. And in that sense, they had supernatural blessing. It wasn't the earthquake that was the blessing. It was that the Philippian jailer and his household received Christ and were baptized that night. And a church has been established in Philippi that we have a book of Philippians written to that tells us to put on the mind of Christ and to meditate on righteousness, essentially. And so when we talk about a supernatural blessing, don't think, well, I'm going to be supernaturally delivered from this injury and harm, and it's not going to happen to me, but rather it is how are you going to respond when that when the evil of the world hates the righteousness of Christ in you and wants to do you injury, are you going to respond by, what does it say, reviling them in return? I'm going to take you to court. I demand my rights, blah, 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 instead of just taking it. Say, okay, you've done this injury to me. I'm going to keep doing what's right, and I'll try to be a blessing even to you who have sought to injure me for doing nothing but what is right. Now, if you're suffering because you've done wrong, all of this is off the table, right? And the Bible makes that very clear. If you do wrong, you deserve whatever penalty comes. Uh, that's why government carries a sword, wields a sword, and that's the difference between rebellion and civil disobedience. So when I'm civilly disobedient and I'm actually doing that, then I expect to be punished uh, when caught. And that's been the case of the Christians in communist countries. They're civilly disobedient. They're meeting. When they get caught, they expect to go to jail. They just expect that. That's the expectation um, because I know I'm violating the law, but I'm choosing to obey God rather than men. So I'm doing it for righteousness' sake, but there is a penalty. But if I'm breaking laws that aren't about righteousness then and, and aren't necessary, then I should be punished. The Bible is very clear on that. But we're talking about for righteous sake, when I'm doing what is right and good, what is just, and should be at least tolerated, should be left alone doing it, when I've suffered for righteousness, I'm not going to be afraid. I'm not going to be troubled. My response of faith is, how can I minister? How can I be a blessing? I think a lot of you have had opportunity to explore that in the last year. And the governor has given us another opportunity in the last 20 days or so to explore that. 
How can I be a blessing in the midst of this? Um, when it seems like, well, we're not doing anything, but yet they have manufactured these accusations, which is nothing new. That's been going on for a long time, all the way back to Christ, uh, manufacturing accusations against the innocent. And, but we're going to still do good. We're going to persist in that, and we're not going to face the threats. We're not going to face all of this with fear and being troubled. I'm not going to be worrying. I'm simply going to persist in righteousness and look for opportunities to be a blessing. And so we, I, I've heard many of you talk about conversations that have come up in the last two weeks that you weren't able to have before. Why? Because you've been identified by the governor as a threat for being unvaccinated. And so have they. And even some of them who have been recognized, this is not fair. This isn't right. This isn't legal in our Constitution. And all of that is correct. But that's what this world is like. And that's why our trust is not in this world. We are, we are suffering for righteousness' sake. And so we are, we are seeking to do righteousness. We recognize that this is maybe a test if nothing else, I'm really finding out, why do I do good? Do I do good in society just because of verse 13? Is that your motivation? Because if that is your motivation, as soon as things turn against you, you're going to stop doing people good. If your sole motivation for being righteous in this godless age is so that no harm comes to you, then as soon as harm does start come to you, now your motivation has been exposed and you will abandon doing right. And you'll say, this isn't fair, this isn't just, this isn't, and you'll complain and you will fight and you'll revile instead of bless. And you've exposed something about why you are doing righteousness. If we're going to suffer for righteousness Biblically, our righteousness needs to be derived from something other than I want a peaceful life and I won't want to be harmed. Our righteousness has to be something more significant in our life. It says, I'm going to serve God because I have an incredible debt to pay that I can never repay. And so my righteousness, what did Jesus say, has to be more than the Pharisees and the Sadducees. You have to, you have to be above that righteousness. If we're looking for a supernatural blessing, it is dependent upon our response when suffering comes. Do we complain and fight against it, revile it, or do we embrace it and say we're going to see God bless it and perhaps do wondrous things? And we see that in Paul's life. Um, we can just go through example, example of his shipwreck event. God told Paul, you're going to be in Rome. You're going to have to give answer. You're going to go all the way to Rome. And, but there's a shipwreck, and they're going to kill all of the prisoners. And he says, if, any, if you kill any of us, you're not going to survive. None of you will survive. And so you say, well, there's supernatural things going on there. Yes, there is. There are supernatural events. He gets bit by a snake, and everybody's waiting for him to die. When they get on the island, and he doesn't die. All these supernatural events say, well, that's the supernatural blessing you're talking about. 
No, that is the mechanism to the supernatural blessing, which is the testimony of Jesus Christ to every guard, every prisoner, and every resident of that island. So that the gospel of Jesus Christ can go forth out of Paul's lips and it'll be effectual in their lives. It is increased ministry that is the opportunity that is afforded by, I'm going to keep doing right, and it's going to, I'm going to be punished for it. Violence is going to be perpetrated against me because I'm just going to do what's right. This is right. And if you want to treat me unfairly for doing what is right, I am not going to seek complaint, nor will I be afraid, nor will I be troubled or worried. And so our first suffering is for righteousness' sake. This is what we ought to suffer for. We should anticipate it. Because this world isn't fair, because the evil one has liberty here. Because the world doesn't make sense. They are not reasonable. We should be prepared to suffer for righteousness' sake if we understand the world we live in. The second reason that we suffer is for our own sanctification. Beginning in verse 15. It says, but sanctify, that is to set apart. Hopefully you all have a good understanding of that word. We're going to talk about a little bit. The Lord God in your hearts. And this goes along with the last sentence of verse 14. Uh, and the idea that I'm going to set apart the Lord God in my heart. What does that entail? And how does suffering for doing right how does suffering enable or assist the process of sanctification? So sanctification, as I just said, is a process. So our justification in our salvation is an instantaneous event. Justification is a judicial act from God toward us because he sees the blood of Jesus Christ says, you are justified. It is a, as a declaration of God, a judicial act of God, because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And I was raised by saying it's just as if you never sinned. Justification, because it kind of sounds like that. Uh, but it is, it is considering or calling you or declaring you as not guilty, though you have a lot of guilt. It has been displaced from you, put onto Christ, and crucified. And so justification is an instantaneous thing. Glorification um, is a, it, while it's future in our experience, it is, again, the working of God that for those that endure to the end will be glorified. Boom. We'll leave this, we'll take off this mortal, put on immortality, and we'll be in his presence. But there's an intermediate part of our, of our salvation experience called sanctification, and this is a process whereby we become more holy. That is to be set apart to God. So while we have been, in, in perspective, we have been set apart. That is, God has set us apart to himself. Now we are looking at, well, I have a role to play here in the sanctification. So we are supposed to sanctify the Lord God in our hearts. We have a part in that. So when you express faith in Jesus Christ and you pray and you're asking him to save you, most people, when they pray that prayer, are asking, though they don't know it because they don't know what justification is at that point necessarily, 
in, term, in that term, they're really asking for being justified. So it's, it's as if I didn't sin. I want my sins taken away. I want the penalty of sin taken away, and I want to be justified. And we really want to be glorified because we want to be in heaven, right? So usually those two concepts are in people's mind when they get saved. What usually is not in their mind when they get saved, but we try to communicate, and hopefully we're getting better at it, is sanctification, that you are now a set-apart person to Christ. That he's not just your Savior, he is not just the one who's taken away your sin and granted you a place, uh, a, a reservation in heaven, but he is now your Lord. That is, you are now set apart to him. And lordship is something interrelational. It requires this back and forth. And so we are called that we, we are called to sanctify the Lord God in our hearts. We are to set apart him even as he has set us apart. And therefore, we set him apart and we are willing to suffer for his name. Not only for righteousness, but also just because we are called by his name. We are setting him apart in our hearts as Lord. This is a process. And it, I wish it was just a nice process like that, a nice smooth curve, but usually it's kind of like this, up and down, up and down, up and down. Because sometimes he's more the Lord of our life than other times, right? And <laughs> that's just the reality. Hopefully, if we do the, the mean curve, there's a little math for you, graph that, okay? It, it's, it is going upwards, but it's a thing like this. But if you average it all out, it should be going more and more towards Christ-likeness in your life. You should be more and more set apart for God and have God set apart in your life. That is that I am more his today than I was yesterday because I have surrendered more of my life to him and I have acknowledged him as Lord over my life. And so the sanctification is understanding that this relationship of me being a child of God and him being Lord of my life need to come together and be a reality. Suffering aids that process. Suffering for righteousness' sake aids that. So we're suffering for this process of sanctification. That we are going to have our hearts more and more turned over to Jesus Christ. How does that work? Well, who is the most dependent upon God? The one who has everything in this world or the one who has nothing? Well, we know that the ones who have nothing trust in God more. That's why faith is so weak in this country because we have everything. And we trust in, and I'm not just talking about money and material possessions. I'm talking about um, lawyers and doctors and life insurance policies, okay? We have, we have all this stuff that we depend upon and trust in much more than we trust in God, frankly. Okay? And so if a big storm hits my house and the roof blows off, which happened once, right, while we were having church, remember that? This is before this building was built. We were over there. <laughs> roof blows off. Well, I don't sit down and I just say, oh, where's the number to the insurance company. First thing that comes into my mind, oh, I'll have to call the insurance company, won't I? 
after the service tonight. Because that's a resource that we have, and therefore I don't have to go to God and pour out that problem. I go to my insurance company and pour out my problem to them. And so we have all these resources, and that's why faith is so small. What suffering does, even for righteousness' sake, is pulls out all those false faith crutches that, that are based in this world. It starts removing them, and now you are forced into a decision. Is Jesus Christ the Lord of my life? Or are these things the things I trust in? Who am I trusting in? What am I trusting in? And suffering enables us to do that because we are usually suffering entails removal of possessions, breaking of relationships, and injury to your person. Okay, we're going to cover just those three. It, it can be, there's an emotional thing, uh, you know, psychological stuff too. But let's just talk about those three things. All three of those force you to decide who is Lord in my life. What am I serving? They start taking away all my stuff, okay? And when the governor this week signs a thing saying by 3030, uh, or by 2030, by 2030, 30% of all New Mexican land is going to be dedicated to wilderness uses, wetlands. And so the first thing I think of, well, are they going to take away my land? Can the government take away your land? Of course they can. It's called eminent domain. They can do it whenever they want. Okay? Um, and so now, well, maybe, so the government has their goal, their ambition now is to, that they have 30% of the land set aside for wilderness and wetlands. And so now we have that threat. Do we worry about that? Well, my trust really isn't in my land. My trust is in a home far, far away. Reserved in heaven. Reserved in heaven and governor can't touch it. That's got to irk her to death, doesn't it? Can't take away my inheritance. Can they take away your, your earthly inheritance? Talk about your goods. Of course they can. All Congress has to do is pass a bill saying that whatever you inherit, we're going to take 70% of them instead of 30. Can they do that? Of course they can. Other countries are already doing that. And now your inheritance is gone. Try giving it to your kids because the government's just going to take it. And that could happen anytime. And so we can sit there and work as hard as we can to keep our hands on all the stuff of this world, and the world can take it away anytime it wants. And that's a kind of suffering. And then physical health. And so when we look at the book of Job and we say, well, here's Job. He suffered all of this loss supernaturally, it seems, uh, unjustly, it seems. And yet now we have this declaration, though he slay me, yet I will serve him. Now we see Job has sanctified God in his heart. And the only way, now, had he been sanctified in his heart before? Yes, that was what was being tested. And now it is even more so prevalent, and so that's why the latter part of his life is more blessed than the prior part of his life, because he has set apart God even more so through the mechanism of suffering. And so we are suffering for our sanctification. And that's why it is okay to embrace that. And that's why it might be a little frightening of how little suffering we have ever endured for generations in this country. Because our faith really hasn't been tested. 
And when I read a passage in Matthew that says, many will come to me in that day saying, Lord, Lord, look at what we did in your name. And he says, depart from me, I never knew you. To me, every American reading that verse should be very frightened. Because frankly, our faith hasn't really cost us much of late. Well, until lately, it's starting to now. And therefore, an untested faith is an unknown one. It's your best guess or mine. Am I really trusting God or do I just have him as a sidelight in my life that I do one day a week? And I, or do I really trust in him uh, and though everything else gets taken away, will I be able to endure? When we sanctify the Lord God in our hearts, we are setting him up as the one we're trusting in. He is the Lord. He's who I will obey. He's who I will follow, no matter the price. And it's easy to say those words, but it's another thing when you're paying the price and keep saying it. I will follow no one but Jesus. I will sacrifice everything for his name's sake. Even though it cost me my very life, it cost me my job, it cost me my house, it cost me, cost me, cost me, cost me, cost me. And until you start paying those prices, you really don't know if you'll stand. Do you? You hope, you think, you believe you'll stand, but what when it starts to really cost you? And you all start moving in with me. I don't know why I said that. Don't do that. I run a really tight ship. You're going to have to work really hard. And learn to milk the goat. When it starts costing us, that suffering is calling you to sanctify the Lord God in your heart. We, we want to do that now. And, and certainly part of my teaching and preaching ministry is to help you in that process of being more and more like Jesus Christ, putting him in charge of more of your life and, uh, and honoring him in righteousness and truth in every facet of what you do. But, and, and we're getting there, but suffering exposes it all, doesn't it? And the parable of the sower and the soils and the seed tells us that. When the sun comes out, when the burning sun comes out, we find out who's the real deal and who isn't. And that's not for God's benefit. God already knows. The it's for you and I to know. When the sun comes out, those without roots perish. They're destroyed. They just, they're gone. They looked like a good plant. They looked healthy. They looked like they were going to be productive. And then the sun comes out. What is the sun? It is trouble. It is suffering. It is hardship for the namesake, for Christ's sake, for and now, because there's no roots, it's gone. Suffering enables us to have confidence in our declarations. We have these professions that we believe these things, but until they are measured by costliness, they're untrustworthy. And so we are cautioned. You who are rich, why is it so hard for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven?
Why is it so hard? Why of all things did Jesus say to that young man who comes up to him, says, what do I do to inherit the kingdom of heaven? Well, go sell everything you have and give the money to the poor. Let's see. And he went away sorrowing. This is a guy who genuinely wanted to be in the kingdom of heaven. But he wasn't willing to pay the price of everything. The price tag for heaven, for our sanctification, for God being Lord of your life, is everything. And that's why we see the martyrs elevated in heaven. Because they sacrifice, willing to sacrifice everything. Look at the Old Testament prophets. What were they willing to sacrifice? Everything. God owns my life. He can take my health. He can take my wealth. He can take my relationships. He can, he can take all my material things. He can take all of that, and yet I will serve him. Which means I go to the detention camp, and I sing. And I go, there's probably some people that need to know about Jesus in this place, since God has me here. Now we find out who is the Lord of your life. If the first call I'm making isn't to Jesus, and it's to my lawyer, I've exposed something, haven't I? that maybe he isn't what I think he is, and maybe I'm not what I thought I am. And so Paul, or Peter's command here, instruction here, is sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. In the midst of understanding your suffering, one of the things suffering does is it enables us to pursue this process of sanctification that we can do more in suffering sometimes, in spiritual development and in ministry than we ever could in all of our comfortable, peaceful times of self-indulgence. We have to work really hard at our sanctification in the midst of the great bounty that we have to be careful, to be thankful to be careful not to learn to trust in those things and to realize that they are brief and are constantly under threat. Jesus said where thieves and robbers break into steel and and things fade and, and just fall apart. Are you trusting in those kind of things? No, sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. Set him up as the as the desire of your heart to serve him, to follow him. And yes, suffering for your sanctification um, needs to be there. I think as a demonstrable proof that I am his and he is mine. Beyond a shadow of doubt. Because I will pay the price for my Savior. I will pay the price to keep doing right. Whether it's fair or not, I'll pay that price. Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us. Thank you again for the opportunity to spend some time in your word. 
And Lord, we um, are untrained by experience in these matters, largely. And Lord, we pray for your wisdom that what we profess today, that we might have the not just the strength of character and will, but the genuineness of our faith to endure. That we might trust in you. And not in our own preparations and our own resources, but in you. And we praise his in Christ Jesus' name. Amen.